Thank you for listening to Health Affairs This Week. This week, we're switching it up as the Health Affairs This Week team takes a break. Today, we're featuring an interview from our uh, Health Policy podcast series. Uh, Health Policy goes beyond the pages of Health Affairs to tell stories behind the research and share policy implications. Each week, Health Affairs Editor-in-Chief Alan Weil brings you in-depth conversations with leading researchers shaping the big ideas in health policy. Episodes published each Tuesday. Please go and subscribe to the Health Policy channel if you enjoy this episode. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The United States is facing a drug affordability crisis. Even as we celebrate scientific discovery, the health benefits of drugs are limited due to barriers of affordability, often even for people who have health insurance. The RAND Corporation reports that on average, drug prices in the United States are more than two and a half times those in 32 other nations studied, and the disparity is even wider when we focus just on brand name drugs. Now, drug pricing is the subject of seemingly perennial debates. One side focuses on access barriers due to high prices. The other side argues that lower prices threaten future innovation. The complex world of drug pricing is the subject of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm speaking today with Stacy Duzicina, Associate Professor of Health Policy and Cancer Research at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I had the pleasure of meeting and then working with Dr. Duzicina when we served together on the National Academy of Medicine Committee on Ensuring Patient Access to Affordable Drug Therapies, which issued the Making Medicines Affordable Report in 2018. More recently, Dr. Duzitsina and co-authors published a paper in the April 2022 issue of Health Affairs, examining the degree to which people with Medicare prescription drug benefits use the drugs that are prescribed to them. In that paper, they found non-initiation rates among some beneficiaries of greater than 50% for certain treatments, a truly astonishing finding. Uh, Dr. Duzitsina, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Really glad to be here. I am very glad to have someone who understands the complex world of drug pricing, and I'm going to give you the impossible task of, in just a few minutes, making sure that all of our listeners can start with a basic understanding of how drug prices are set in the United States, acknowledging that they're different for commercial insurance, for Medicare, for Medicaid, for branded drugs, for generic drugs. But just give us a little of the top line on this complicated subject. Sure. So often when we think about the price of medicines, we should think about whose price are we talking about, the patient's price or the health plan's price or the price to society at large. So trying to tackle this quickly, um, typically in the U.S., prices are set as high as the market will bear. So what does that mean? Basically means that companies can name their price if they lack competitors or if there is required coverage by health plans. And we have a couple of cases where that is true, Um, but where that isn't true is where we have head-to-head drugs competing for market share, Um, and in the generic drug market in particular, where we know prices are much lower for consumers and for health plans. Typically in the U.S. for brand name drugs, the list price of the drugs has been climbing pretty substantially, and the list price is the price that is most visible to us as researchers and as consumers and the price that cash paying patients would have to face at the pharmacy. 
Um, but it's not necessarily the price that the health plan is ultimately paying for the drug that we would call the net price. And in some cases where there's a lot of competition, even for brand name drugs, the net price has been pretty steady or in some cases declining a little bit. Overall, I think the most important things to recognize for an access question are that list prices really do affect consumers, even those with health insurance, because we have a lot of people who pay deductibles where they pay 100% of the list price or they pay a coinsurance. Well, that's a very succinct uh, explanation of a very complex topic. Just to introduce a couple more concepts before we go into depth here. Um, People may have heard about pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, Uh, You already alluded to uh, rebates, the difference between list and net prices. Just say a little bit about how PBMs fit into this ecosystem. Pharmacy benefits managers or PBMs, we think of as the middleman who is negotiating on behalf of the health plans or employers uh, for getting lower prices for drugs. So if you think about how many different drug manufacturers there are, and how many different purchasers, you need to combine your purchasing power into a big group in order to negotiate for better drug prices. So in some ways, when we hear that health plans or Medicare does not negotiate, that's not exactly true because they are working with a middleman or negotiator, the pharmacy benefits manager. Now, the way that pharmacy benefits managers come in and complicate the system is that we don't know how much or how they get paid typically, and we don't know how much they're retaining when they make these negotiations. So if they provide all of these negotiated discounts back to the health plan and lower premiums for consumers and employees and employers, that's great. But there's a lack of transparency in the system that make us a little bit suspicious about how much of a piece of that pie they're taking. Um, In addition, one of the things that comes up for consumers is that what PBMs are able to negotiate gets paid back to the plan after the sale. So in effect, when a consumer is paying a deductible or coinsurance, they're paying on the non-discounted price, which means that they're effectively overpaying for their prescriptions relative to their health plans. So it makes us a little bit concerned about the role of pharmacy benefits managers in driving up costs to consumers. Okay, I want to uh, start setting the stage for the most recent paper you had in health affairs. When I think about prescription drugs, I think about the medicine I pick up down at the pharmacy, and I may have a 10 or 20 or higher level copay. Um, This paper focused on specialty drugs, which is a really different market. Tell us a little bit about what these are, and then I'm going to have you go into the basic findings from this paper, which I found really interesting and actually quite disturbing. Sure. So for specialty drugs, um, there are lots of different definitions of specialty drugs when you read the literature, but there are a couple of key definitions that we looked at. One is related to how Medicare decides a drug is eligible for the specialty tier on the formulary. A specialty tier allows a health plan to apply a very high coinsurance to that drug when a person is filling it. And CMS has set that as $670 per fill. So we use that threshold of $670 to create a long list of drugs that are brand name and meet that cost threshold. 
But we were really interested in drugs that were being used for a couple of clinical conditions where we know that use is very important, the treatment options are limited. So we focus on specialty drugs for cancer, for hepatitis C, for immune system conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, and then also for, uh, for familial hypercholesterolemia, where there's some injectable drugs that are quite expensive. Okay, so these are high-priced drugs that are really essential to people's health. And you go to the doctor and you get prescribed one of them. You looked at folks on Medicare who have Part D coverage. They get a prescription. What happens next? This is a really novel data linkage. So we use data from 11 different health systems around the country and ask them to pull out every prescription written for someone who was newly being prescribed one of the drugs of interest. And we had 50 plus cancer drugs, for example. Um, and we looked to see for Medicare beneficiaries whose data were linked to uh, the electronic health records, what percent went on to fill the drugs within 90 days. And for people who had a new prescription for a cancer drug, for example, about one in three did not fill their prescription that had been written for them by their doctor. And we looked at this individually for many different drugs and found that the rate of not filling was very similar across pretty much all of the products. Now, the rate of not filling was even higher among some of the other clinical areas. So for immune system conditions, it was closer to 50% of people not filling and for hypercholesterolemia, even higher. So some of that could have been related to things like prior authorization or other administrative hurdles to getting a drug filled. But we also looked to see, were people filling anything else that could be used for their condition and found that similarly small number of people were filling their drugs. Um, so the rate of non-initiation was still quite high. And when we think about Medicare, finally, after many years of fighting, just uh, comes to the place where it includes a prescription drug benefit. And so these are folks who have insurance, but um, the cost of these drugs, even when you have Part D coverage, could still be quite substantial. And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about what the cost is and then talk about the role that uh, subsidies played, because that certainly gets at the issue of affordability. The cost for cancer drugs, for example, I'll just stay, stay with this one example, though we found similar patterns for some of the other treatments, um, were potentially $3,000, for example, for the first fill. This would be what you as a beneficiary would be expected to pay for your very first fill of medications. And if you just imagine going to the pharmacy counter and then taking, getting a bottle, most cases, you know, 21 or 28 pills in that bottle and being asked to pay that amount of money, it just seems, you know, unbelievable. Um, then after you fill that first fill, you're talking about 600 to to $1,000 per every other fill for the rest of the year with no out-of-pocket spending limit. So the financial situation for someone who is being prescribed a new cancer treatment is quite shocking and absolutely unattainable for many people. Now, about one in four Medicare beneficiaries on Part D qualify for low-income subsidies, and in particular, the people who qualify for Medicaid wraparound coverage pay very little for that same prescri prescription. So they may pay 
7 or $10 for that same drug that would cost another beneficiary without subsidies $3,000. And in our study, we actually compare those two groups, the people with subsidies and the people without. And keeping in mind that the people who have subsidies have a low out-of-pocket cost, but they have very, very low income and resources. So typically we would expect their uptake of drugs and their adherence to drugs to be lower because of all these other financial challenges. Instead, we found that they were about twice as likely to fill their prescriptions as people who didn't have subsidies. So we found that really the problem is among people who have these very high out-of-pocket costs when going to the pharmacy. One of the things we know about the subsidies is that there are a lot of people eligible who actually don't take them up. So this seems like a a multi-layered problem where we have people who we have government programs in place designed to provide insurance. We have additional programs in place to help with affordability. They have a serious medical condition and somehow they're still falling through the cracks. That's right. So we have, especially for the group who is not automatically qualified for subsidies, who get what we call extra help on Part D, a large percentage of that group does not enroll in the low income subsidy program where they can get some help for those extensive costs. Now, one challenge with the extra help program is that if people are qualified for only a partial subsidy, they still have to pay over $1,000 for that first fill. So you're talking about someone who has very limited resources and assets and incomes, and they're still being asked to pay well over $1,000 for that first fill. It's the subsequent fills where they really gain a lot of benefit, where then they're limited in how much out-of-pocket spending they have to have over the course of the time they're filling their prescription. Now, this is just uh, your latest paper with us on this topic, but you've been working in this area for some time. Can you just broaden out a little bit on the topic of affordability, what you've learned, what you've learned from others who do research in this area? If you had to characterize the nature of the challenge we confront, how would you do that? So I think that one of the things that has always surprised me is how much we rely on existing data sets to try to characterize problems with access. So we use a lot of administrative data like Medicare data or private insurance claims data to figure out whether there's a problem. Um, Typically, though, if someone can't afford their medication, they don't create a medication record. So I think that for a lot of situations, you know, like if I said to an average person, uh, Medicare beneficiary, for example, that people who have an out-of-pocket cost of $3,000 don't fill their drug, they would be like, of course they don't. Like, who has this kind of money? But I think that our literature has been a little bit behind here. You know, we're talking about people with relatively rare conditions and expensive conditions, and they're just not captured in a lot of our survey data. They're not captured in our claims data. And so I think that we haven't been able to characterize how big of a problem this is. And that makes it very hard for policy because we can't, if we can't capture how many people are experiencing this problem, we don't really have enough motivation to fix it. 
So I think one of the things that I've really been trying to do as, you know, a population health researcher is try to characterize how many people are really being affected by this problem. Because when I look at the details of the policy, same thing is true for people on the commercial market who are paying high deductibles. It is no surprise to the average person that those individuals would not fill the medications And I think this is one reason, you know, when we see public polling, people are really frustrated by drug prices is because most of us know someone who has not been able to afford their prescriptions. So in a way, I think science has to kind of try to catch up with the reality of our policies and to do a better job of thinking about who's not represented in our data sources and trying to really understand you know, how do we get those harder to reach groups to be able to describe what's happening for them and not just the people who could afford to be treated in the first place? Well, that uh, raises some important questions about public policy and where we ought to go. We'll take those issues up after we take a short break. The Rural Health Research Gateway is your preeminent resource for free, timely, and relevant rural health research funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. Visit Gateway at ruralhealthresearch.org and subscribe to Gateway's research alerts to be notified whenever new rural health research is published. Follow Gateway on Twitter and Facebook at RHR Gateway for key research findings. This message was paid for by the Rural Health Research Gateway at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Stacey Duzitsina about drug pricing. Before the break, you raised a really interesting point, and I I do want to spend a moment more on it about how we even think about this problem. So, so much of health services research relies on claims data and claims data arise when from a transaction. And if someone either doesn't fill a prescription or doesn't even get the prescription because the doctor explains to them that this is something that will be quite costly, those people are invisible in our claims data sets. And so we have to find other ways to understand uh, the demand. Um, that just seems so important. And it it does make me understand also when we see public opinion surveys about affordability barriers, we see these very, very high numbers, which you simply can't capture from, from claims. Um, you know, the, the perennial debate that I referenced at the outset is that the flip side of all of this is, um, well, if drug prices aren't high enough, then there's not a high enough return on investment for those who are developing drugs. And developing drugs is a risky business. And so we won't uh, discover cures to emerging issues or, or to major population burdens like Alzheimer's if we don't support a system of high prices. So I want to ask you kind of two questions about that. One is sort of what you think of the argument in and of itself. But I'm also struck by what you said early, which is the difference between the, you said, whose price is it? So uh, we could pay a whole lot for drugs, but not expect the people who use them to come up with all that money. That's what insurance is supposed to do. So how much of this debate is about this underlying question of discovery? And how much of it is just about allocating costs to the right people? 
I'm glad you're throwing out softball questions. <laughs> that's my, that's what I'm known for. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there is always a nugget of truth around this innovation and access question. So the price needing to be high to encourage innovation. I think that there's room to cut, uh, to be quite honest. You know, our prices are higher than anywhere else in the world. Um, and I also think that if the prices come down and insurance coverage becomes a bit more generous to account for those savings, we may have more users. And going back to our findings, if one in three people on Medicare aren't filling their cancer drugs, that's a lot of lost sales that, you know, these are people who have a prescription written by their oncologist to get this drug. So if the price comes down to a more affordable level and the benefit becomes more generous to account for that, you could have like, an, you know, same kind of revenue, just more sales and lower price per unit. So I think there's a, a lot of room uh, to go when it comes to pricing. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of room for improvement in the benefits themselves. You know, we have designed benefits that worked really well when Medicare Part D first uh, came about. But I don't think that when we were designing Part D that these drugs with prices of, you know, ten or $20,000 per fill were on people's radars. That has become really the status quo in at least the cancer drug space and in other specialty drugs. And so we need to modernize the benefits to really reflect where we are. All that said, you know, we do have a couple of key problems when it comes to pricing. One is this mandatory coverage makes it really hard to negotiate for prices when you require coverage for a particular set of drugs and cancer drugs or have required coverage on Medicare Part D. You know, if you thought about trying to negotiate like a car price. Um, and they knew that you had no way to get off the lot except to buy a new car and drive it home, you would have no leverage. And like, no one would think that's a good idea. So we should think about whether mandatory coverage of everything's a good idea. And to be quite honest, we should try to align the price with the value that the drug brings to society. So Companies who develop really innovative, excellent products should get very handsomely rewarded for that. And companies that have less innovative, less beneficial products should make less money. And now we don't really differentiate between those things. So we get a lot of innovation, but it's not necessarily drugs that are really changing people's trajectories. You know, there's a lot of uh, redundancy in what we're getting these days. You said, you know, People talk about Medicare negotiating prices, but that actually does happen already through the PBMs in Part D. Is this a real debate about whether or not Medicare should negotiate prices? What What's the difference between what would happen under some of these proposals for negotiation uh, relative to what we already have? So there's definitely room for additional savings. And one of the issues is um, that our negotiations only work really well when there's competitors. But if there's no competitors or if there's been some sort of gaming in the system where one company just has all the market share, then you would need an additional set of tools for negotiating those products. So the market works pretty well for itself. For example, um, hepatitis C drugs 
they're very expensive, but there are many head-to-head brand competitors. So PBMs are getting very deep discounts and rebates for those drugs. If you look again at the cancer drugs, that's probably an area where we would need more actual intervention into the process because those drugs have very limited rebating happening because of the mandatory coverage. You know, this sounds, uh, as you say these words, it reminds me of conversations we have about hospitals, that with hospital consolidation, which is a different dynamic, we have a lot of markets where there really isn't any competition. And if we want to do anything about prices, we're going to have to sort of directly intervene. But there are other places where there are multiple systems and they're competing against each other. And you can swing volume one way or another based on who's in network and out of network. And maybe you have some leverage there. So I guess this this uh, question about what enables a healthcare market to function really plays out across the different uh, types of uh, products in healthcare. Yeah, it's uh, helpful that there are some consistencies, uh, but it also, I think, points to the fact that solutions are always going to be more complicated. I do think that having an actual credible threat of negotiation would go a long way. So I think, you know, one of the policy issues is that Medicare is, you know, banned from negotiating. That should be amended so that there is like a credible threat that if there is a misbehavior or a completely broken part of the system that, you know, we could step in and Medicare could negotiate, in which case I think it would keep everybody a little bit more in line. Uh, Just having that credible threat. Again, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you have no leverage because, you know, we've done that and we've seen how that works out. Uh, You were part of uh, coining this phrase, pharmaco equity. Tell me about that and what it would mean. Um, So I want to give full credit to uh, Dr. Essain, who is the uh, person who really is the core behind the terminology pharmaco equity. So the concept here is that everybody, regardless of your race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or access, has actual fair and equitable access to prescription medications. Um, So your ability to pay, who you are, your background does not interfere with your access to the highest quality of medication treatment. And, you know, part of this has really come about because we know that there are great disparities in access to health insurance, to uh, the way that medicine is practiced, that there may be biases introduced into the system. Some of Dr. Essain's own work, for example, has shown that individuals, especially Black individuals treated in the same health systems with the same health insurance, have lower access to the most uh, recommended or first-line therapies, uh, especially in the cardiovascular disease area where he spent quite a bit of time. Really having the goal of making sure that everyone has equitable access to treatment um, and the same best treatments uh, is the key concept behind pharmacoequity. From all the work you've done, if you could wave that proverbial magic wand or be ruler for the day and put in place a law or a policy, what would be the best step in the direction of pharmacoequity? 
Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, okay, so I would spend the most time first on patient out-of-pocket cost, because I think that's where we see a real break in equity. We know that people who are the most well-off in our society have the most generous health insurance benefits and pay the least when they're interacting with the healthcare system. So we sort of flipped our benefits in a way that the people who could pay the most pay the least most often. So I think I would... um, spend a lot of time trying to improve uh, and reduce the cost to patients. I think I would also use my magic wand to make every manufacturer and the whole system decide that they wanted to profit less on all of us. Um, Barring a magic wand, you know, I think that there is, you know, a a really great Medicare Part D redesign that has been kicked around in Congress for the last couple of years and in, was included in the Build Back Better Act. It's still something that's being actively debated today. And it would go a very long way in improving access for Medicare beneficiaries like the ones we studied. So the, the biggest improvement in my mind is the out-of-pocket cap for seniors. Um, so you wouldn't have this unlimited spending throughout the year. There's also a plan to smooth the cost over the remaining calendar months so that your cost wouldn't necessarily be so high for that first fill. Um, And then simplifying the benefit. So even if you're not taking a cancer drug or a drug for rheumatoid arthritis, you're taking something like insulin, it would just make that cost more consistent from fill to fill so you weren't guessing all the time at how much you might have to pay. So even though I would probably change a lot more things with my magic wand, I would really love to see Congress actually move forward with Medicare redesign. It's well beyond time. Well, I really appreciate how you talk about this. And I think your key message among many is that pricing, and when we talk about how much we pay for prescription drugs in the United States, that that there's so much that can be done on the out-of-pocket side and the structure of insurance and the structure of co-payments and cost-sharing that's separate from the overall levels of pricing that would make just a huge difference for so many people. And obviously, at the end of the day, we have to tackle the whole thing. But to remind us that uh, prices at the broadest sense don't matter as much as out-of-pocket costs and that, that uh, your your research has really, I think, dramatically improved our understanding of of the implications of that. So, uh, Dr. Duzitzina, thank you so much for uh, your work and for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thanks so much, Alan. It was a great time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.